This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right. Uh, welcome to the conversation on TYT Network. We got an, a really interesting guest for you guys, Chris Hansen. Uh, he was, of course, the host of NBC's Dateline's uh, Catch, To Catch a Predator. Uh, and uh, he's now um, hosting a podcast called Predators I've Caught. He's also hosting Hanson versus Predator. Um, so Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, thanks for having me. Uh, no problem. So um, let me ask a quick question about the podcast and then of course I, I wanna ask you about uh, To Catch a Predator and all the things. And sure. everybody who's watched it, which is pretty much everybody on the planet, is certainly in America. Uh, at some point or another has a series of questions and I'm among them. Um, so how's the podcast different? What do you guys, do you guys talk about the old cases? I assume you don't go into people's <laughs> houses with an audio <laughs> thing and go, oh yeah, I got you, no. Exactly, we're back. Uh, the podcast is an opportunity for me to go back over some of these cases and get inside and relive them and, and take the listener uh, behind the scenes of the show. And then to also find out, you know, where is this guy today? What has he been up to? Has he stayed out of trouble? Has he gotten back into trouble? And, and it's been fascinating. It's really been reflective for me, especially as we go out and, and we start doing new predator investigations for television and for the YouTube channel. It, um, it's, it's, it's fascinating because so often it happens so quickly. And you're so in the moment that you don't have a chance to reflect it. This has given me the opportunity to do that. So it's been it's been fascinating for me too. Yeah. So I've always wondered about people's reactions because you're you're catching super bad guys who are looking to have sex with underage kids, right? So I imagine that most people are cheering you on, right? But there's an element of such over the top public shaming that I wonder if you also had critics. And and how to break down? I know, of course, you don't know the percentages, but like, were the critics, you know, a tiny amount, or was it a significant portion of folks who said it, the shaming is just too much? I think it was a small percentage of people who saw the show. The reaction that that I get is overwhelmingly positive. It was then; it is today, 17 years after we did the very first investigation, and 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 I think people are genuinely behind it. And I think especially, Jank, when we talk about the pandemic and the fact that so many more kids have spent so much time online, and you know, you look at. A recent study by the Center for Missing and Exploited Children that suggests the number of predatory approaches of children, the number of cases in the US has gone up 99% at the peak of the pandemic. And you also have to think about this, when we started these investigations, we merely had decoys in chat rooms on AOL and Yahoo. Well, today, you know, there's been an explosion of social media platforms on which a potential predator can reach out to a child. Yeah. So, of the people that that you guys caught, 
you know, the most common critique you guys would get and the question you would get is, is it entrapment, right? And but I'm curious what your take on of the people that you caught. Do you think that almost all of them would have done it on a different day with someone real? Or do you think most of them would have, but maybe we got a couple that wouldn't have actually done it if, if this opportunity had not presented itself? I think that you see some of the younger guys who had the opportunity to meet somebody uh, online uh, who didn't have the, you know, the guts to do it in person. I think some of these guys without the internet, without um, the opportunity to chat with people, they wouldn't necessarily offend. But I think that would be the same whether it was a child online or whether it was uh, one of our decoys or whether it was a law enforcement decoy. I'm comfortable based upon what I've seen and, and the people to whom I've spoken that these guys would have offended and in most cases had offended prior to surfacing in our investigations. Um, yeah, I'm sure there were a couple guys who it was really the first time. But I doubt in in very many, it would be in the, the low single digit percentages, I think. Yeah, and, and God, getting a lot of these guys off the street, if not every single one of them, certainly the repeat offenders, getting them off the street is a giant public service. Right, so. Well, you see some of these guys, we went back and, and took a look at a fellow, uh, Michael Gentile, who is the topic of predators I've caught this very week, came out today. This guy showed up at a house to meet a 13 year old girl. He was 64 years old. And during the investigation, the Fairfield, Connecticut police found a hotel key in his pocket and went to the hotel, which was nearby. He had a virtual child porn studio set up to which he wanted to take this child and create child porn essentially. So, you know, the damage that these guys could do, did do before they were caught um, is exponential. So, Chris, you know, now now we have an explosion of people who believe QAnon uh, and they believe that the Democratic leadership and Hollywood stars are leading child sex rings, etc. Now that's absurd and they have absolutely no evidence of that. But one of the things that struck me was that people who had been abused before were more likely to be QAnon supporters, right? Because to them, it was within their experience. Oh, People in power abusing young kids. Yeah, well, sure, that happened to me. It might not have been a president. It might not have been Tom Hanks, which is of course absurd, right? But it was some my uncle who had power over me, etc. So what I'm driving at is, is this a much, much bigger problem than we realize in America? Well, I think it's, it's a bigger problem than even we've found. And again, you know, over these 17 or so years, we've exposed, you know, more than 400 predators in all the different investigations combined in, in different formats. Um, law enforcement goes out every day. You know, I was at CrimeCon a few weeks ago and I presented with a, <clears throat> a um, law enforcement investigator who works in Ohio and, and they go out, you know, three or four times a year and the numbers are staggering. And this is just in, in central Ohio. Uh, so you combine that with what's going on overseas. You combine that with 
you know, how many different social media platforms are out there right now. And the fact that we've been in a pandemic for more than a year, more kids are online more than ever before, more parents are engaged online, perhaps in the same residence, but focused on their own business. You know, the opportunity is there. And, and you know, whether it's interactive gaming or whether it's, um, you know, just a, a regular kick or a TikTok or anything like that. It's there's a, there's a great potential for the kids to be approached, and I think it's important that you know parents have this discussion at an early age with kids and and make it age appropriate, of course. But start that discussion because there isn't a way in society to really have an effective demand reduction. In the drug world, we have demand reduction, we have treatment, we have this philosophy that it's no longer a crime as much as it is a disease addiction. And so we work it that way. But when you talk about um, you know, a pedophile or a predator, it's not the most glamorous aspect of medicine. You have people who are very dedicated who do this work, who go into prisons and, and talk to offenders, but there's not nearly enough of it to reduce demand. So it becomes education, it becomes awareness, and it's necessary to have a dialogue, which is what you know I've always tried to do with any of these investigations. And and what's your sense, Chris? Is do people uh, do kids get molested more with by folks they know? Or nowadays, because of the availability of the internet and all those different ways, people they don't know. Historically, it's always been more by folks they know. Whether it's a relative, whether it's a friend of a relative, whether it's a person in power, a scout leader, a coach, that sort of thing. But because the stranger, the internet predator has become so adept at grooming. The person who's a stranger, you know, on a Wednesday may not be a stranger, you know, by the time Friday rolls around. So you have this this growing number, I think, of stranger predator activity. Uh, and it's it's much higher than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. But but historically, yes, you're absolutely right. It, it's there more of an issue um, between people who know each other. Right, and you know, ironically, now the the probably the best known person accused of child molestation and running an actual child sex ring is Ghislaine Maxwell, who's in in prison <coughs> now, co-conspirator of Jeffrey Epstein. But did you ever catch a female predator? Never in one of our investigations. One time we had a fellow say that he was going to bring his girlfriend with, and we think it was a ruse just to try to make the you know the target feel more comfortable. But in none of our investigations over all these years have we seen a female predator. I know it's happened. I wrote a book on the topic you know several years ago, and there was a case we profiled there. But the psychiatrists tell us that it's. When it comes to the female predator, you're more likely to see the teacher-student scenario that we've seen, you know, played out so many times because female predators don't like the anonymity where male predators tend to thrive on it, and so you just don't see as many in this scenario, in the scenario that we, you know, investigate. All right, last thing, Chris, did you ever worry that you were going, you were in physical danger? You know, we had a couple times when it came close. Uh, in the moment, you don't really realize it. Um, you know, we, the whole 
physical structure of the set, if you will, is designed to have a barrier. But I, a couple times I got out from behind the barrier by mistake and came came pretty close to a guy and saw him tense up. But you know, we we had good security there. I was never really um, too frightened about that. After the fact, you know, you start to think, okay, this could have happened or that could have happened, or we found out later something about this guy that, that made you cringe. But generally speaking, I think for what we do in these investigations and how volatile it has the potential of being, which is why people like to watch it, partly. Um, I feel we're all as safe as we can be. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it would have been different if you did it today because now everyone has uh, guns. And so, um, you know. It, well, we're doing it. We were out a couple months ago doing it. And, and, you know, you just have to be ultra careful. And you have to, fortunately, you know, we have the ability to do the research and background on guys. And if we see somebody um, who talks about carrying a gun or even has a concealed permit or any reason to believe that they're carrying, we won't do a confrontation. The law enforcement will just take them off. And, and um, you know, it's not worth it to have a, a confrontation. We took a look at a case where a guy didn't show up in the house but was arrested nearby the house and he was a law enforcement officer who had multiple guns. He had a 38 in his pocket, which he would have had when he walked in. He had a assault rifle in the car, he had a shotgun in the car, another handgun and 800 rounds of ammunition. So this guy, you know, was really really up to no good and ready for battle. Um, what would have happened when he walked in? You know, who knows? We never had to face that, fortunately, because he was arrested, right. you know, off property. I want people to know they're still arrested anyway, even if Chris doesn't do a new show on them. So, right? <laughs> exactly. Okay. Exactly. So, Hanson versus Predator is uh, the uh, YouTube channel. The, the YouTube channel, and then the new podcast right. is Predators I've Caught. So correct, uh, and there it is. Um, so Chris, uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you for thank you. putting away a lot of bad guys. Uh, and I don't know whether to thank you or not for the nightmares you've given me. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> I have them too. So if that's any consolation, <laughs> right? All right, thank you, Chris. Thanks. All right, back on a conversation. Uh, now we're going to talk about folks who've been released from prison because of COVID. Um, should they remain so? I think it's a really interesting topic uh, in a couple of different ways. We're gonna bring on Anthony Fisher here. Uh, he's from Insider and he wrote a column about this. Anthony, uh, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Jack. No problem. So Anthony, I do find this an interesting one. First of all, who did they let out of prison? Um, that of course people are gonna be concerned. Wait, is it murderers, rapists, etc., right? So who was it? No, it was in fact the lowest possible security risks in the federal prison system. These are people in minimum security prisons, all of whom were nonviolent offenders, all of whom had spotless prison records. Otherwise, they wouldn't have qualified for home release. And so, you know, just to clarify, when you say released from prison, they were released from prison, but they were released into home confinement where they are required to wear ankle bracelets basically all the time that are monitored by the government. But they are allowed to enroll in classes, they are allowed to get jobs, and many of them did. Many of them reconnected with their families, repaired relationships, became mentors in their communities and their church groups. 
got jobs, have have resumed becoming uh, being the breadwinners of their households in certain situations. Um, so these are these are definitely the the people who uh, restorative justice was working for. They were definitely not the murderers and the rapists. Yeah. All right, so that's reassuring, obviously, to everybody. Um, and I'm a lib, and I like that uh, you know people are back in society in a productive way, and we're not over incarcerating. So those are all good things. But I'm going to keep pressing on on some of these things. So one of the concerns I had, Anthony, as I read your piece, was, well, a lot of white collar criminals uh, did nonviolent crimes, and and so <laughs> on the surface, the only ones we saw publicly were. Almost all rich people who were getting released from prison, right? Now, of course, that's not, that's a misleading way of the looking at it because famous people are being featured in the news as released from prison. And most poor and middle class folks aren't famous at all. Nobody's gonna do a news story about them being released, right? And so, but I do wonder, were there a lot of white collar criminals in this batch that got released? Well, I actually don't have a survey because it was 27,000 people and there are currently 4,000 people at risk of actually being sent back, which I'm sure we'll get to. But just in my very informal survey, working with Families Against Mandatory Minimum and just the people that I reached out to myself. There was one white collar criminal among all the people I spoke to. Some of the people were recovering addicts who got caught up in drug conspiracy, which as you know can be, especially when it's a federal charge, can can mean a lot of different things. It can be a trumped up charge. I'm not saying it was in this case, but just a long way of answering your very simple question is there was one banker who admitted to me some financial chicanery. Everybody else was involved in petty drug stuff, maybe a little bit of petty theft. But that was the only white collar criminal I came across. That's interesting. Yeah, I read about that guy, and he now has a job at a company. Which, man, people are wonderfully forgiving, and you know, especially for the poor middle class folks, that's great because it gets to get some back on their feet, etc. But guy does fraud, and you put him in the company. I don't know. I'd be nervous. Yeah. But anyways, but he has a job, and a lot of them have jobs, and that's actually great that a lot of them have jobs. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm going to ask one more what appears to be like a, almost a conservative question, but but I but I'm genuinely curious, and it's going to lead to something else too. I, I noticed one person in your story had been selling fentanyl, which actually is really dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. So like marijuana shouldn't be illegal to, to begin with, and now in a lot of states it isn't. Uh, Joe Biden said he was going to do the get it off of Schedule One. Of course, he didn't keep his promise, and we're going to get to him not. Potentially not keeping a promise on this, but um, is that a problem when somebody was supposed to serve 15 years and they only served three? I mean, is that a is there any argument to be made there that that's a miscarriage of justice? Well, again, it depends on what your your sense of justice is. I'm I'm on the criminal justice side of things. Where our criminal justice reform side of things, where I think that we in overall incarcerate too many people and uh, treat justice too punitively, whereas uh, it's kind of uh, revenge and punishment seem to be more um, uh, a metric of how seriously you're taking the offense or how much you care about the victims. And there are some arguments to be made. Uh, John Path wrote a great book called Locked In, where he argued that you know to re- reduce in mass incarceration, we actually are going to have to sentence the worst of the worst to more lenient sentences. Now that doesn't mean like five years for murder, but maybe it does mean some murderers will get out in their lifetime. So I don't know that I go that far, but I do think there is something to be said for 
particularly like say for instance, if there's a 15 year sentence and most of those sentences are reduced to half with good behavior. But so that lops it down to about seven and a half years. And if you're three years into it, you're coming up on the 50% threshold of where you could be initially eligible to be released from prison. And those are some of the metrics that the Bureau of Prisons already works with. In the case of the people who've been released from prison to home confinement right now, it's because of a memo that then Attorney General Bill Barr issued at the beginning of the pandemic that said we need to kind of thin out our federal prisons wherever possible. So these are the lowest risk people available that that qualify for home confinement, and that's that's how we got here. It's it's fairly remarkable. You know, we can get to how it changed, but. Uh, as as Kevin Ring of uh, Families Against Mandatory Minimums put it to me, these are the people who Donald Trump and Bill Barr thought could be let out of prison. So they, you know, these are these these are two you know tough on crime types, <laughs> and if these are the people that they thought you know deserved a shot at home confinement, then there might be something to that. Yeah, of course Donald Trump's not at all tough on crime. He, uh, if you're talking about white collar crime, he loves it. Can't do enough of it, and will pardon yeah. anyone who's done political or white collar crime. But yes, he's tougher on non-rich. He's tough on crime, <laughs> right? And so we're gonna get to how Biden can fix this because these folks could be going back to prison now if if COVID's mm-hmm. over. But but one more thing. So, but because of COVID, we saw, for example, I'm a progressive, so you know we say, oh, we got to get free vaccines for people. Great, wonderful, I love it, right? And then people started wondering, and even some conservatives started wondering, oh, why are we giving away free vaccines? They should, what we should do, like free healthcare for everybody? And of course, us progressives were like, yes, yes, that's what we've been saying the whole time. That's what every other country does, right? And this is a similar situation. Wait a minute, if we let these folks out that were supposed to serve much longer sentences, and it turns out they're really low risk and they become productive members of society, isn't the real issue how ridiculously harsh our sentencing was in the first place? Yeah, and I, I would completely concur with that sentence. That you know we've we we've only just begun recognizing the damage of mass incarceration, even though we've been now talking about it for years. We you know about halfway through Obama's time in the White House, it became a real serious issue around 2014 from Ferguson. But we haven't done much about it. I mean, the First Step Act, which was signed by then President Trump, is a drop in the bucket. It is a good first step. Trump's DOJ actually did a lot. Of stuff to undermine the implementation of the policy after it was signed into law. But we haven't done a great deal to reduce mass incarceration because we haven't radically changed our mandatory minimum policies, both at the state and federal level. We still treat crime as something that can be solved through punishment. We don't think at all about, you know, that. People who've committed crimes shouldn't be branded as criminals and stigmatized as criminals for the rest of their lives once they've paid their debt to society. That they should be able to have a second chance at life. Um, Till we have that kind of attitude uh, for the people that, you know, so some of the easier cases might be the people we're discussing now are on home confinement, but some of the less sympathetic cases, you know, that they're, you know, that they might have the ability to have a second chance at life, is something that we really need to embrace if we're going to talk seriously about criminal justice reform and sentencing reform. Yes, and so I, I used to be conservative back in the day, and there's like traces <laughs> of it left. So when I see the Norwegian system, and they are so lax compared to us. And I mean, yeah. even Brevik, the the mass murderer, uh, might be released at some point. 
I'm just shocked. Unlikely. But, uh, yeah, but it's possible and he's, he's sitting there complaining that he has a PS3 instead of a PS4 and etc, right? And but it's the, it's when a you light. Yeah. Uh, but when you look at the numbers, their recidivism rate is so much lower. So the mm -hmm. people are not going back to prison because they they're not going back to crime, which well yeah. facts matter. And so it turns out our whole like, oh, we will punish them and then we will get more justice. No, it turns out we get less justice. So I just want yeah. the audience to know that, yes. Prison damages people, you know, like you, when you, if you get locked up for the first time, the chances that you're gonna be in better shape to resume your life as a productive member of society afterwards are smaller. You know, prison makes people addicts, prison, you know, just out of, out of survival, people are, you know, among other criminal elements and start, you know, new criminal businesses while they're in prison. It's not a great, it's not a great place to, to sit in your room and think about what you did and how you'll improve your life afterwards. It becomes, <laughs> you know, kind of an animal kingdom to survive uh, and it changes people for the worse. So we should be locking people up for less, for not as long as periods of time, and we shouldn't. We should be thinking that every crime doesn't need to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law or the fullest, the most harsh sentence available, just to prove that we're taking crime seriously or that we're respecting victims. It's kind of a society-wide thing across the board. Like I actually, you know, not to use the word. But I, I had written a column last summer where I basically said you could have criminal justice reform or you could have cancel culture. If you have a zero tolerance look at the world, if you have a zero tolerance view of people and that you know mistakes must be punished or you're not taking the issue seriously, then you're not going to have criminal justice reform. It's they're, they're you know divergent paths. Right. And Anthony, finally, let's get to why they might be sent back and and who gets to make that decision. Sure. So uh, at the very, very end of the Trump administration, even after Bill Barr had gone, it was three weeks after Bill Barr resigned, uh, Trump's De Department of Justice issued a memo to the Bureau of Prisons, which said when the COVID emergency ends officially, so when the Health and Human Services uh, Department ends the COVID emergency at a federal level, that these people who are currently on home confinement can and must be sent back to prison. That's the guidance that the Trump DOJ gave to the Biden, the incoming Biden administration. It's now been six months and the Biden administration hasn't made any indications that they will change this memo, that they will rescind this memo. They haven't commented on it, Merrick Garland hasn't commented on it. Um, and it's you know it's it's not boding well you know Biden's been in office for almost six months you know he hasn't really shown that his the regret that he claimed to have had on the 2020 campaign trail for his long distinguished Senate career crafting laws that it contributed to mass incarceration he claimed to have regretted that and claimed to want to you know move towards restorative justice this would be a perfect opportunity for him to do so but at the moment. Nobody in he neither he or anyone in his administration has given any indication that they will rescind the previous Trump DOJ memo and let allow these people to continue to serve in home confinement, provided that they abide by the terms of their release. Yeah, so uh, I'm considered outrageous because I say things that are obvious. Uh, Joe Biden's a liar, um, so <laughs> it doesn't mean he's not going to do it. Uh, he might, if you put enough pressure on him, he might do it because he's a politician. But he led on mass incarceration. He was not a bystander. He was patient zero, uh, and certainly on the Democratic side, but maybe in either party. 
And and he was yeah, also he pushed Reagan to the right. There's a the, the Intercept uh, and others have have covered extensively uh, how you know the, the rhetoric that was going on in the Senate at that, at that time, where Biden, both on crime and drugs, was pushing the Republican Party to the right in the first Reagan administration. Can you imagine? hundred. Not only can I imagine, I covered that story here, and and so he's also patient zero on war on drugs, as you pointed out there. And so this is a guy who just believes in his core that that the punishment and locking people up for petty crimes, etc., is the way to go. So there's, and and he also said, oh, I'm going to take you know marijuana off of Schedule One. And so that's a layup. What you're talking about, Anthony, is the layup of layups. Right, they're mm -hmm. low risk. They're already productive members of society. Putting them back into prison is crazy, and he still won't commit to it because he never meant it. He never mm -hmm. meant it. For note to other people in media, politicians lie all the time. Right, so don't. Oh well, Biden said it. It must be true. Well, so far, it isn't true. Um, so yeah. Anthony Fisher doing a great job of pointing out the facts in this situation uh, from the insider. Anthony, thank you. We appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jack. Have a good night. You too.